This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. When the jury panel comes into the courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise, I know we're here. And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should be above the law. A lot of us talk about that, but you've actually done it. That's how you also maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah. That's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have my good friend, Andy Young. Andy is a lawyer in Ohio, and he specializes in trucking cases. He's been nice enough to come and talk to us. How are you doing today, Andy? I'm doing very well, Michael. Thank you to Trial Lawyer Nation and Delisi and your whole team for having me on the, on the show. So how long have you been practicing law? I've been practicing law 20 years now. What was the thing that made you decide to specialize in trucking cases? So I began focusing on trucking cases more by accident. Just uh, I think that's typically how things happen. I have a car hobby and a bunch of buddies that have a car hobby too. And uh, one of my buddies got laid off probably about 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And he says, hey, let's go buy a Peterbilt. And I said, okay, let's do it. And uh, we went ahead and bought the Peterbilt. We actually rehabbed this truck together. I started a truck company uh, with him and on his behalf. And I learned a lot through that process, didn't realize how much I had learned until I learned about the truck litigation group nationally. And next thing you know, I was asked to, uh, to potentially speak and I apparently I had something good to offer that I've been continuing to ask, uh, be asked to speak and uh, with all those speaking invitations has come basically a full-blown practice of truck crash litigation. So basically from the fact that you had a trucking company and were a law- plaintiff's lawyer, you were asked to speak at things, that's how you got into it? or? Yeah, no, I, I have a passion for the industry is how I got into okay. it, quite frankly. And, and I have a passion for anything that is on wheels, so the trucking industry was a natural passion. My father actually had a, a passion for big ships, big trains, big trucks, so he sort of instilled that passion in me when I was a kid. I worked on a farm when I was a kid, also learned how to drive big equipment while I was on the farm. I have a Class A CDL, I've had it for a long time now. And I still own the semi-truck and still drive it on a regular basis. So you don't hate the trucking industry then? No, no, I actually really care for deeply. I care for the truck drivers in the trucking industry. I care for the truck industry component that treats their drivers well. The rest of it I'm not a big fan of. Why not? Because there's a lot of abuses that the drivers go through, and the abuses are, are commonplace mostly for profit-gaining profit motive. Uh, there's something called the trainer fleets. The trainer fleets are these big, huge motor carrier giants, and the big motor carrier giants have, these giants have a, let's say, a 100% turnover rate. What that means if they have 10,000 drivers, they're actually hiring a new 10,000 on a regular basis. So 5,000 of those drivers may stay consistent, but 5,000 of those may drop off in six months, and then 5,000 more will drop off six months later. So they're constantly going into the truck driving schools, bringing out drivers who are newbie, one week, two week old drivers. They aren't paying these drivers anything, so they're gaining their profit edge by having inexperienced drivers drive on a regular basis for them. And then in, a, in the process of doing that, they treat them almost like slaves and indentured servants, and they ultimately take take the, the passion and the pride of 
becoming a truck driver out of these folks, they end up disappearing. So the Owner Operator Independent Drivers Association, which I'm actually a member of that organization, there's good and there's bad to that. We can talk about the good for the first part of it. The good part of it is uh, they track the number of drivers nationally. There's 400,000 new entrants drivers, but by the time your license renews four years later, only 90,000 of those people renew. Wow. So the industry really chews up and spits out truck drivers on a regular basis and it's really unfortunate it's probably one of the reasons why we have a continued increase on the fat fatality crashes yeah you know people, years. i was thinking like why do we have a truck driver shortage when truck driving actually pays pretty well it's because we have a shortage of people companies that aren't treating truck drivers like crap that's right so it's over 20 years the ata in particular has been screaming about a truck driver shortage uh, the american trucking association is ata and they've been talking about it in a way that isn't unfair is unfair but you have the owner operators independent driver association saying no no we have a driver compensation problem and because we aren't taking care of the drivers and paying the drivers you're not and you're not taking care of them in a way that need, they need to be taken care of as a result of that uh, it, the, the driver shortage is somewhat of a myth. In fact, there's articles on it. In addition to that, there's people who've been through the trainer fleets that are what I would call safety advocates who are truck drivers, uh, more on the grassroots level. So we're talking like Desiree Woods and Alan Smith. They all have podcasts and different things uh, that they, they push out there and they do some advocacy things. And these truck drivers really talk about the abuses that they suffered and the, and the indignity they suffered by at the hands of some of these trainer fleets. So the trucking industry has has tight profit margins and there's some there seems to be some game whether it be through the driver hiring newbie drivers or not taking care of equipment or buying used or junk equipment. There seems to be some method where the trucking industry is trying to shave off in a safety arena somewhere in order to to make a couple extra bucks, which is really unfortunate, but that's the reality of it. And the poor drivers who work, let's say, a 14-hour day and only get paid for six, eight of those hours. That's exactly right. So you, they're paid by the mile, and if they're, on, as the saying goes, if, if the wheels ain't turning, then you ain't earning. Uh, and what's even worse is the shippers and the receivers who aren't regulated, are, and even the brokers, are the ones that are really abusing these drivers and the truck companies themselves. So the truck companies have a customer, and the customer says, okay, hey, I want you to go pick up oranges in southern, southern Florida. Well, the driver goes, picks up a load of oranges at the Orange Grove. Well, there's no scale house nearby. 45 minutes later, they get to a scale house. They're overloaded. Hey, I'm overloaded. Well, that's too bad. You got to go. If you don't haul it, we'll find somebody else to haul it. And that's the reality of it. It's really so the shippers and receivers don't suffer the penalties, and they're the ones that are the big cause of a lot of the, of the problems that are out there. So how do you kind of reconcile your passion um, really for the truck drivers and wanting their world to be better with suing trucking companies and truck drivers when they cause harm so it's very simple uh, it, it all comes down to safety and safety is not unique to your victim client it is actually something important for the truck driver so uh, a truck driver who has a truck company that cares about that driver and has all of the collision avoidance uh, technology on their truck or let's say even underride guards if they're involved in an accident, the accident will probably be a minor accident. And then that truck driver 
uh, doesn't have their career destroyed. Whereas a truck company that doesn't care about the driver or the safety components that can be put into a truck ends up in an accident that would otherwise be a minor accident, but due to the vehicle crash compatibility or the, AKA the mismatch of the bumpers, you have an underride scenario and a death. Now that truck driver is going to jail for a vehicular homicide case. So everything that I do and my clients through their courage, that, that what they do is we ultimately help make one truck company and one truck driver safer at a time through the courage of my clients to pursue litigation. Many of my clients and in my off time, I spend a lot of time in safety advocacy trying to help educate on these issues. So every single, you can name whatever safety issue you want, it is beneficial to the truck driver too. In fact, the truck driver is often a victim of a crash and the crash that, that concerns them the most isn't the crash with a four-wheeled vehicle, it's another semi-truck hitting them. Because when it's a truck-on-truck -truck crash, then that typically takes the truck driver out of the driver's seat permanently or even potentially kills them. And so when you're talking about, let's say, minimum insurance requirements, well, minimum insurance requirements should be beefed up and the trucking industry should be in favor of that because it benefits the truck drivers. Because if you have a young truck driver who only knows truck driving, who's taken out of the driver's seat with a crippling injury, that minimum insurance is not gonna cover that truck driver. Or uh, that minimum insurance isn't gonna cover the, for the family if the truck driver has died and he was providing for a family, to provide for that family for the rest of their lives. So everything that I do ultimately is in favor of safety and that's in favor of the truck driver too and the motor republic. So when you're talking about the motor republic, in fact when I frame my deposition questions, I'm like, safety is all about the motor republic and the truck driver too. So I always add that in to just about every single question I ask. Oh uh, good. Now you've talked about advocacy. What have you done other than filing lawsuits to try to improve the trucking industry? So a lot of the safety advocacy has started in 2011. I have a Twitter feed called at Safe Drive Home. And uh, through that Twitter feed, I was putting out earlier in my career, I was writing articles about underride. And I met up with a woman by the name of Anna, uh, by the name of Marianne Carth. And it's going to be what is underride? Okay, underride is basically when a car that hits a truck, the car is better off hitting a brick wall because the car has energy-absorbing bumpers, it has crumple zones, it has airbags, it has seat belts. So if you hit the brick wall, all of those, the crash worthiness and the crash safety of the car protects the occupants inside that car from what's called passenger compartment intrusion. If that same car hits the side of a trailer, the first point of impact is the windshield and then the skulls of the people inside that car. So Basically, the the car goes under the all the crash energy management features of the car just kind of go underneath the trailer and instead you're getting a hard steel going in through the windshield through the a-pillar and hitting the people that's exactly right so in europe they call it vehicle crash compatibility they have what's called the vc compact that's basically mumbo jumbo for the bumpers don't match up yeah. so when the bumpers don't match up you have these catastrophic situations where you have fatality, you have decapitation, you have open skull fractures, you have brain injuries, you have spinal cord injuries, quadriplegia, paraplegia, you have the makings for the eight-figure case or the case that is going to bankrupt the truck company because they have the minimum insurance. So in many ways, an underride guard, which is a simple device, costs 50 cents a day for the life of a trailer, could keep that truck company out of bankruptcy and keep that truck driver, if they're at fault, uh, from having to go to jail in one of these cataclysmic underride type crashes. 
And so sorry to interrupt you, Abdas, but interrupt. But you were talking about what have you done in the safety advocacy field for trying to, you know, outside. You're actually hurting your business. You know that because you're making trying to make fewer wrecks happen. Yeah, I, and my measure of success isn't necessarily my business. If if someday I have young children, uh, they're not that young. They're teenage children. Even more of a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if if someday. 20 years flash forward in the future, I have my grandkids in the back seat and I see underride guards on all these trucks and I know that the trucks have all the crashworthiness technology on them, then I know that I was one part of many people on a bigger cause that ultimately is saving considerable lives. So back to how I got involved, I started writing on this particular issue and I wrote a pretty substantial article for a local trial lawyer magazine, the Cleveland Academy of Trial Attorneys, but I put it out there and Marianne Carth, who lost two daughters, Annalie and Mary, uh, in an underwrite crash, found it, and she was working with an organization out of D.C. called the Truck Safety Coalition and also working with the Insurance Institute of Highway Safety advocating for an underwrite roundtable. So I got invited to the table to be part of the organizational committee and one of the moderators, uh, and then I ended up doing, doing that a second time. So I've participated in uh, four crash tests at the Insurance Institute of Highway Safety's crash test facility in Rutgersville, Virginia, which is the state-of-the-art... Oh, yeah. In my mind, it's like Disneyland. It's just incredible. And uh, then in addition to that, I've done three grassroots crash tests in Washington, D.C. I actually drove one of the semi-trucks and trailers uh, from North Carolina up through Virginia uh, to that crash test. And then ultimately, that led to an opportunity to testify before Congress uh, because uh, there was a bunch of Hill staffers at that particular event where I drove the truck, but I also was an MC at the event on some of the issues involving underride, historical issues on underride. So, and then this was all in conjunction with folks who've lost uh, family members or survived underride crashes. And it's wonderful to see the passion of these folks bring this together, bring awareness to this cause. And then the big question is, well, well how come Congress hasn't done anything about this? And so this is the question that as a moderator of the various panels, both at the Church of Highway Safety and at the DC crash test, I asked the panelists who are industry players, well, how come we haven't done anything about this? The last question I asked. And most of them are like, because nobody's really put two and two together. It truly is a no-brainer. It's just it's a matter of awareness and, and it's a matter of ignorance that the industry just hasn't put it together. They, they just view it as a cost. So as, as soon as they view it as a cost, they're closed-minded to it. And they don't really realize not only the direct costs that can be saved from a track, uh, truck crash, but also many of the indirect uh, costs and benefits that can be saved and provided uh, by, by pushing and doing this particular initiative. For example, in Europe, they've had for 30 years, they've had underwrite guards, not necessarily preventing cars from going underneath it, but to protect vulnerable road users, your bicyclists, motorcyclists, pedestrians. In that 30-year time frame, a woman named Tanya Robinson of the Transport Research Laboratory of London did a, was one of the authors of a study to show a 61% decrease in bicycle fatalities as wow. a result of just having these side guards since 1986. Here we are, 30 years plus later in the United States, and we don't have side guards. And what are we doing? And it's just, it, it's mind-boggling. I've been to Europe twice now to a commercial vehicle show in Birmingham. It's like hopping in a DeLorean and going into the future as opposed to back to the future and seeing all of the incredible safety technology and benefits that they have in Europe and on these trucks that we should have here. You're seeing Europe have a decline in fatalities, yet here in the United States we've had a near 40% plus fatality in the last decade. Uh, while fatalities went down nationally with the most recent reported data in October of 2018, the, the number of truck crash fatalities went from 4,900 
and one or something to, to 951. So it went up a, a couple percentage points. Yeah, and that's been a trend for a long time. You know, overall crash deaths were going down uh, for a long time. They, they kind of took a tick back up probably with the explosion of mobile devices, I'm not sure, and then went back down again. But even when, during all that time, truck crash deaths have continued going up. So we've had all these advances in, in safety technology, uh, you know, electronic stability control, combined with stronger roofs and better uh, restraint systems have really, you know, markedly reduced the deaths and rollovers, which were a, a huge deal. You know, advanced airbags and crash window systems have really protected people. Roof structures, all that. Yeah, all the, but but in tractor trailers they've kept going up and up and up even though they're trying to make the vehicle safer the you know way that they're basically abusing the drivers and putting these 80,000 town vehicles in unsafe situations has has made it worse the one thing i wanted to point out and what you said you know you talked about there's ignorance as to why these guards are needed on the underwrite guards maybe in the trucking companies there's definitely not ignorance on the part of the trailer manufacturers they've known about this for a long time so you're absolutely right so eric hein and wendy hein uh their son lost their son riley hein not my client uh, actually michael sievers and randy mcginn's client out of new mexico they lost their son and i met them at the dc crash test for some of the safety advocacy which was cool because anybody who's listening to this you should have your family members during the grieving process get involved in the safety advocacy because it helps them provide some new meaning and purpose behind their child's life uh, that, that was lost. In addition to that, when I'm certain that when Eric Hine and Wendy Hine testified, they talked about this, cra this grassroots crash test that was done in Washington, D.C., and that was probably powerful for the, the jury to hear what they're now doing. And so I had an opportunity to meet these people way before they even got a really wonderful result of a, on a product claim against the trailer manufacturers. The trailer manufacturers were at the Insurance Institute of Highway Safety's underride events that we had. It wasn't a lawyer event. It was all trucking and trailer manufacturers. So the trailer manufacturers were well aware of and paying attention to what's going on, and yet they still don't do anything because they're like, oh, we need to be federally mandated to do something. No, you do not need to be federally mandated to do something. It doesn't cost that much. Put your foot forward and put your good foot forward and do it. And fortunately, through litigation, we're starting to see the needle move to safer trailers. In fact, the Insurance Institute of Highway Safety's work created a stronger rear guard, as Michael, I know you've had a great success on a case involving a rear underride guard, uh, particular issues, so creating what's called the Tough Guard Award, or some of these market-driven standards that are just phenomenal. But uh, and I think it really is going to take an act of Congress or a change through the National Highway Traf Traffic Safety Administration to the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards in order to make a meaningful change and mandate it so we don't have another 60 years. I mean, so the first regulation was in 1953. In fact, that regulation is still the regulation for rear guards for single unit trucks, which has no strength testing requirement at all. So we're still operating under a 1953 regulation for single unit trucks, whereas the trailer trailers, tractor trailer trailers, accommodation units, the trailers have had a 1998 standard, but now with the work that's been done by safety advocates, by the Insurance Institute of Highway Safety, we have much better rear guards, but the time is now for side guards. We can't have, in fact, while I was at this event, I helped create the timeline on paper, and then we created a big, extended the length of the room timeline from 1953 up to 2015, which is when we had the first one, or maybe it was 16, when we had the first underwrite conference. I had the victims that were in the audience stand at their respective places. There was a woman named Jennifer Tierney who's been out in front on this, lost her dad in underwrite 
crash. So in 1986, I had her stand at the 1986 mark, and then there was a whole pile of people, including some of my clients, that stood beyond that. And I said, and I challenged everybody in that room, which were the engineers behind the trailer manufacturers, that if we had just gotten it right in 1986, all these people standing to the right of that timeline wouldn't be here. So let's make sure we get it right now. So yeah. These people, so that there's not going to be more victims lined up for another 10 years or 20 years down the road. And I will tell you that, you know, I think there is some hope on the horizon on side guards. And one, Randy McGinn and Mike Seavers uh, got a monstrous verdict against utility trailer manufacturing company on a lack of side under ride guard, yes. uh, which is gonna get everyone's attention. The other issue I think is that on the rear guards, I know from some documents, I can't quote them because of some silly orders, but the, that some of the big trucking companies were looking to buy a rear guard that met that got the tough guard award yes uh and you know once one of the big trucking companies gets popped for not having side guards when they have the angel wing or other aftermarket things available uh they will have the pressure to start buying them and that will change the industry yeah, so that's one of the beauties of being a trial attorney and the courage of our clients to pursue these particular cases is we can move the needle, we can create public policy change, and these big verdicts actually help create those changes. And I'm hopeful for uh, the Hine family that ultimately that they're able to prevail on any appellate issues that are to come, and hopefully that verdict alone or, or future verdicts are going to change the, the course of, of history and save countless lives going forward. Hey, you've got a unique perspective because you both drive a truck and you've been involved with running a trucking company. What have you learned from that experience do you think makes you a you know, better trucking lawyer? So I would say driving a truck, if, if, you, if you're thinking about being a trucking attorney, I highly recommend uh, doing what Michael Callan did, go to the truck driving school so that you have a good context of what it is really to maneuver one of these very large pieces of equipment. Uh, I will say that I had my, I was actively driving for a period of time and then my truck sat for a period of time, but then I started actively driving recently because I'm part of a, a novice race car team that's like low budget, uh, but I haul the trailer that hauls the race cars. So I, I drive the truck and the trailer fairly regularly. And then when I'm doing that, if I have a case that's going on, I'm thinking about that case and I'm thinking about what the truck driver experienced in that case. So it's helped give me an advantage. For example, I had a, a tractor, a, tortfeasor tractor that was uh, going, he said he was going 20 miles per hour, but he also said he was just getting into third gear. If you're just getting into third gear, the top mileage you're going is 14, the lowest you're going is seven, so he's just going seven. Where this helped me was it was a data point that I could counter the data point that the accident reconstructionist hung their hat on, which was the 20 miles per hour, then it said that our people were, was going, were going in excess of the speed limit at 50 miles an hour. So I was able to back up the speed limit down to seven miles per hour from 20, which then backed up the calculation down to putting our people within the speed limit. And in another case, I have a case where our truck driver's encountered a hazard up ahead, but he's seeing it transpire and, and going on up ahead. So I asked the truck driver about a stale green light. A stale green light, what is that? It's a light that ultimately is a green that you didn't see turn green, so it could turn yellow or red at any given moment. If you're driving a normal car, you can stop it without any difficulty. 
A semi truck, very different. So if you're in 13th gear you need, and you see a still green light, you don't want it to go yellow and then you have to slam on the brakes because it takes 200, especially if it's a higher speed road like a 50 mile an hour or 60 mile an hour road with traffic lights, you don't want to slam on the brakes in 13th gear. You want to actually prepare and you literally gear down from 13th, 12th, 11th, 10th, all the way down to where I would call a splitter, which is getting into the nuance too much, so that you can comfortably stop if that light turns yellow or red. The same with a hazard that you're approaching ahead. If that hazard starts turning into an emergency, you want to have control over the vehicle to bring that vehicle to a slower speed and to stop it, and that's done by controlling the engine speed with the gears. So those are two examples of driving truck and how it's made a huge difference in being able to talk with a truck driver. It's the same thing is if a truck driver says, or even a corporate uh, person who has a CDL, tries to tell me, I just had this happen recently, uh, a, a truck broke down but stayed in the middle, didn't get all the way off the highway. And I said, well, you don't believe this was a preventable crash because my lady then ended up hitting the back of this truck that was out into the highway. And he says, well, you know, he got over as far, far, as, far as he could. And I was like, do we need to go to the photos? Do we need to look at everything? I don't believe he did. Well, he's not gonna know, unless he gets out of the truck, and, and looks to see where he's at, he can't then get back in the truck and move a disabled truck. And so I called him on it, it was total BS. So I called him on it, I said, now come on now, that's why we got side mirrors and, and convex mirrors and fender mirrors, and you've got that handy dandy <laughs> hood ornament that you can use as a sight to make sure you're staying between those lines. And he can uh, BS me because I drive right. a truck on a regular basis. So very, very beneficial. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now, back to the show. So you've got some good results on some fairly tough fact patterns um and you know one thing we talked about a lot of the show is case selection you know when to say no when to say yes what is and you have a pretty unique philosophy when i've talked to you before on, on case review and case selection can you tell us about that yeah so there's a simple litmus test that i use in it and it, it doesn't matter if, if my people hit the back of the semi-truck. And it doesn't matter if my person has, let's say, a DUI, or let's say they were speeding, or some other issue going on. If the semi-truck driver and the semi-truck company created the hazard that otherwise would not have allowed the crash to occur in the first place, then I think it's a good case, and it's a case worthy of pursuing. So for example, if a truck driver, and this is a case that I actually handled, the semi-truck does a U-turn, and my guy 
hits the side of it and is in a 2014, this was a 2014 crash, and a 2014 Trail Ride Edition Jeep Grand Cherokee, even though that newer car is not going to protect that driver because the first point of impact, as we discussed, windshield then the passenger in the car. Well, he was DUI and he was speeding. However, but for the U-turn, that crash would have never happened in the first place. And if you do trucking law on a regular basis, it is absolutely a no-no to do a U-turn ever in an 18-wheeler that's 73 feet long, can move, that only moves very slowly. It takes a long period of time to do that U-turn. And so as a result of that, we were able to create exposure. So back to the litmus test. If the truck company, truck driver creates the hazard and our people confronted the hazard, regardless of the situations of our people, I think it's a viable case. There are often cases though where we created the hazard and the truck company confronted the hazard. For example, I had a woman who was on the back of a motorcycle, a deer hit the motorcycle. She came off the motorcycle and was in the middle of the roadway. She was laying in the middle of the roadway, still conscious, conscious and a um, passing motor stopped to render aid to her, and it turned out he was a former, he was an off-duty police officer. So he's on 911 talking to her, stay down, ma'am, stay, stay calm, ma'am. You can hear in the background. Next thing you know, a truck comes along, doesn't see them in the scene. Oh my gosh! And it's and you can just hear it in the voice. The the, the off-duty cops composed all the way through. And then he's like, he he shouts out an expletive that's just unbelievable. And then he says, it's a fatal, it's a fatal, it's a fatal is what he, he kept repeating and just uh, and this was a mother of two young boys and a beautiful mom of two young boys and long story short is this is a situation dark highway where truck driver confronted the hazard so we we started mapping out clues to the hazard that he could should have seen to be able to recognize that there was something going on up ahead and then in addition to that when we did a deep dive into his hours of service. It turns out he was he was within his hours of service that day, but he was not within his hours of service for the week. So we could bring in a fatigue component and argue that he was not likely alert the way he should have been alert at the point that he confronted this particular hazard. And then we learned this truck driver had a litany of violations uh, that ended up being 12, 14 of them long and ended up becoming the, the crux of the case, yet the company kept retaining him. The safety director wanted to even try to uh, discipline the driver, but was overruled by the boss saying you can't lay him off. And so it ended up becoming, so, so the ultimately back to your answer, created the hazard or confronted the hazard. If, if your people created the hazard, then you have to look to clues to the hazard or you look to whether or not the driver is alert based on the hours of service regulations. Okay. So, yeah. But if, I just turned down a case yesterday. Uh, I was called about a case where I don't think there's a case there. It was a 70, it was a 20-year-old that was going 71 miles per hour and just went right underneath the back of a trailer in the highway, and the truck and the trailer were stopped because there was another crash up ahead. Truck driver, I don't think, did anything wrong in that scenario. I had another one where truck driver was going only about 20 miles per hour on a highway, which is bad and no-no. First thing I did though was I downloaded this 24-year-old girl's cell phone. Sure enough, she was on her cell phone at the time. First thing you do, just spend the money, get the download, do that, and then explore whether or not uh, that that hazard could have been, whether or not you have a case based on the scenario I just described. So, now, those are good tips. Those are great tips. I appreciate that. Now, you had a incredible verdict recently. I think uh, the whole case, because uh, it was you and another lawyer, each had your own client, the whole case hit for 
$42.4 million, but $34.6 million of that was given to your client. That's right. Uh, tell me about that case. So that was a very difficult liability case. It was an underwrite case, uh, and it was a situation where a dump truck changed lanes and cut off the sheer clear distance of a Honda. My gentleman was a front seat right passenger of the Honda, and then the other plaintiff was in the back seat right side of the car. There was a driver in the Honda and then another passenger in the back seat behind the driver. Both of those two walked away from the crash. And that's not uncommon in underride because the underride only encountered the right side of the, of the car. And so uh, we had terrific injuries and we were able to very simply using the CDL manual that the dump truck driver has a duty to keep a proper lookout. And the dump truck driver has, an under, has a duty to, to understand what he or she is seeing at the point that they're going to make a lane change. They only move when it's safe to do so and they should not become the hazard. And in this particular scenario, the dump truck driver did all those things. Well, defense counsel took the stance that, oh, these were young kids in the middle of the night and there was no drugs or alcohol involved. And it, uh, I think just took the stance that, hey, this was a rear end collision and nothing more. Uh, whereas this was a cut off the shirt clear distance. And it was a, it turned out to be, it, it took the span of three weeks, the trial, and it was a pretty significant battle, but uh, a good result nonetheless. So and I care for my young man, my young man, uh, he's, he's of Puerto Rican descent, and he calls me Poppy Blanco to this day. <laughs> and he is, um, he's unfortunately wheelchair bound, and he has enough, he had an open skull fracture, severe TBI, he has some paralysis in his left arm and his left leg, uh, incontinence, and the worst part about, but also maybe a, even a bright shining spot in his injury is that he's aware of, of his surroundings, he doesn't have memory of it, so he'll tell his uh, he'll say, Mommy, I'm sorry, I, you're changing my diapers, having to change my diapers. So she, he says that just about every single time. Ah, oh, poor guy. Yeah. And, but he has a beautiful daughter. He's got to see his daughter grow up. He's got one good arm to give her good hugs. So there's some good that's come of it. And uh, fortunately, as a result, we've collected some of the money. We're still working on collecting the remainder uh, to help his lifestyle so that he has no worries. Yeah. And that's uh, really important for somebody in that state where they know they're a burden on everybody around them to not have the worries and concerns that would otherwise plague somebody in that type of a, a situation. Were you able to do anything to make the case about more than just the driver's errors? Uh, it was primarily about the driver's errors. So one of the things that I do is a little bit differently than uh, some of the, the key people, David Ball and others, is I usually front load my trial not on the rules, but I actually front load it on the damages. So in a way that that, that gets the jury to understand why the rules matter. Because just simply breaking the rules is all well and good, but if the if the broken rules broke somebody and you can really expose how broken that somebody is, then the broken rules really matter that much more. Now, oddly enough, we had a CDL driver on the jury panel uh, for that one. I vetted this guy beforehand in voir dire. I asked him, hey, you're supposed to keep a proper lookout. Yeah, you're supposed to understand what you see. Yep, I agree with that. You can only move when it's safe. And so this one, the dump truck driver was the owner of the company, so there wasn't anything more to Okay, yeah. So it's a little bit of a different scenario. So I wasn't able to get into some of the, the arena of like, okay, what did the truck company do from a back-chaining way to have created the situation that was involved? Well, if some consultant wants to criticize the way you did it, I think the result speaks for itself. Thank you. Appreciate I it. mean, uh, 
Well, you say you should have had a thirty-seven million dollar verdict instead of a thirty-four point six. I mean, come on. But the, but the listeners need to know you can't get that type of a verdict as your first verdict out of the box. I've tried over fifty jury trials, and I've been doing this for twenty years. I had eight jury trials within the first two and a half years of doing this type of work. You need to go in and get your hands dirty, and you take difficult cases, any case that you can get to trial, you get to trial on, because you only learn by doing it. you got to get the patterns of doing it and understanding it. So, for example... What do you mean the patterns of doing it? So, the patterns of doing it, so you, let's take the old man fire chief. The old man fire chief goes into a burning building with his crew, and then he says, everybody get out of here. Everybody then gets out, right as the last person crosses the threshold to get out of the, the building then collapses. They ask that old man fire chief, well, how did you know that? He can't put it into words. It's tacit knowledge. It's that sixth sense. You need to develop that sixth sense by getting into trial, earning what I call your red ribbon with pride. What's the red ribbon? So the, the first place ribbon is a blue ribbon, and this is from my Texas day. I actually lived in Lubbock, Texas as a kid, so I used to be on a swim team. And when we swam at Odessa, Texas, the, the blue ribbon, the first place ribbon wasn't blue, it was black. It was a black ribbon because of the oil in Odessa, <laughs> Texas. So, so the first place ribbon is the blue ribbon. The second place ribbon is the red ribbon. And if people ask, well, how did trial go? I came in second. And yeah, which really sucks. <laughs> yeah, which totally sucks. But you got to own it, and you got to, and then you got to move on, and you learn from it. So I call it tuition. So we have a case that's going to be a difficult case going to trial pretty soon. There may be a red ribbon in my future, but I'm okay with that because you know you're professional. Not that I'm a professional sports star by any or a professional star in any in any respect but the professional stars lose games too okay so you know in this and and one of my partners is like why are we taking this thing to trial it's expensive I'm like well going to college is expensive too but you get a you get an education so let's go get the education and plus i believe in this case and i think i can win it and while you may not believe in it i believe in it i think we're going to do a good job for my client we're going to make it work so you got to wear that ribbon with, ribbon with pride the same with the tre chess master the chess master became a chess master not by playing one game of chess but by playing thousands playing a whole gymnasium room full of people at the same time where they're all lined up along the wall all the way around the gymnasium uh, with their backs to the wall where, while the chess master goes to each one and beats each one as they go around the inside the ring of those those tables. So you have to get into trial. I agree. I think the red ribbon, the, the experience of losing a trial and then your world not falling apart afterwards is important. And you realize it's just one case. And it sucks for the client. You know, there's no, I don't want to go, get around that. And, and there are you know, I was supposed to be in trial this week, but they made an offer that my client wanted to take, and I'm not fighting around it because it was it was our evaluation of the case. Uh, and you got to do what's right for your client. But you know, when what I told my client, it's like, look, I'm going to try your case because before we didn't have, you know, when they were talking about the possibility, said, look, you're going to make a decision on settlement. I'm going to try your That's case right. the best I can, uh, and I will tell you, I'm going to have a drink after trial. Now, I may be drinking champagne to celebrate. I may be drinking whiskey to drown my sorrow, but the next case day I'm going to work on another case. Yeah. And, I, and I love you, and you're a great person, but I, my my life will not materially change whether I want to lose this trial, and my career will not materially change whether I want to lose this trial. So let's not worry about me. Let's worry about what is the best thing for you, because you don't get a second chance. Uh, and I think that the uh, but learning to detach. Learning that you're not necessarily a better lawyer because you won't got a certain result on a trial, and you're not a worse lawyer because you lost a trial, but that you just you go in there and you 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 learn how to do it, and it's kind of like 
Major League Baseball. Those guys go up to bat, and the best home run hitters have a lot of strikeouts. Yeah, no doubt about it. But because and they don't think just because they get one home run, they're going to get a home run every time they go to bat from that there on out. But that practice, that ability, gives them the ability to hit a home run and the chance of doing it. And I think that's what we have to develop. So Theodore Roosevelt said it best in one of his quotes, and I think it's about the the man in the arena. Yeah, and that's if you don't know it, look it up. You can't stand the sideline. I've seen some really talented, like raw talented, young trial attorneys in my 20 years who've gone in and lost a trial and it's destroyed their entire career. You need to get up and move forward, wear that red ribbon with pride. I had a, a trial lawyer, sports star, and Kentucky good buddy of mine, I'm not going to say his name, he texted me. All he needed to text me was red ribbon. And I said, man, I'm right there with you. You're good. Don't worry about it. You can't beat them all. You know, chin up. Keep moving forward. And, and so I frequently get the text to got a red ribbon. So these things happen. You don't hear about them, but they happen. And you know what? They help you grow. They help you grow and develop cool trial techniques. Like I think we're going to talk about one uh, in prepping a, a witness. Yeah, they really do. They really do help. Now, I, I've learned all I want to learn. I don't want to lose any more cases. But no question about it. Me either. But I'm hoping I've got another 50, 100 trials in me. So odds are. <laughs> I like pushing the envelope, though. Let's see what we can do. Yeah. Let's see if we can make. I believe it. If I believe in the key is. So here's the key as a trial attorney. Number one, just be you. Number two, believe in your case. If you're you and genuinely you, and you believe in your case, then you're going to win. You're going to win regularly and you're going to win big and if you don't believe in your heart and hearts your case have someone else try it don't do yeah, it yourself exactly right so the worst uh, when i was a young lawyer one of the difficult situations was i was handed a, a case the the weekend before labor day weekend i was supposed to try the case on tuesday and i didn't know the case and you know what i didn't believe in the case and i and i did okay but you know i got below the offer i got a verdict just just under the offer which in my opinion was a loss so. me too my my definition of win, which really messes up my statistics, is my client was materially better off having gone to trial than having accepted the best offer prior to trial. That's exactly right. I've gotten verdicts around the offer. Those are losses. Yeah. When you can get double or triple the offer or even five times or up <laughs> multiple times, yeah. those are the wins. And you know what? You can do it, but you're not going to do it your first time unless you've done been in the courtroom to figure out what works for you. And you're not going to do it by adopting somebody else's style. You have to come up with what is your own style. And you know what another secret is too, you really genuinely have to care for all people. Because the jury's gonna pick up on that when you're at talking to the jury and voir dire. If you show that you are caring about what the jurors are saying to you during jury selection, they're gonna pick up on that, hey, you're a good dude. So if you don't actually care for all people, then maybe you should be second chair material or support in some way or another. You gotta have that sort of DNA that's in your fiber that you care in like a very loving way for your fellow person. So That's awesome. Yeah. Now you talked about some of the things you've learned at trial. One thing that I, I like that I've learned from you is the balloon analogy. Yes. What, what's the balloon analogy? So the balloon analogy is great. I had a client of mine, this was early in my career, he was an angry guy. He was just almost, I, I dreaded having to talk to him. He would he would always bite my head off, show the anger. He lost his wife, uh, not due to the, the incident, but many, many months later, but he blamed the incident. We couldn't prove that to, to the fact. So anyway, he, he constantly pulled out his teeth and claws is what I called it. And so I came up with an analogy for him. 
and, and I called it the balloon analogy. I said, Michael, what's your favorite color? Red. Okay. So pretend you have a red balloon between us on this table. We're in a room right now with a table between us with two microphones. My goal is to blow up that red balloon it's a, into a big, beautiful red shape so that the jury can see a big, red, beautiful balloon. Everybody loves balloons. So if you can have the jury see that big, red, beautiful balloon, you've won. If you pull out in your teeth and claws, Michael, what happens to that balloon? And I pop it. Yeah, is there any chance that I can then reinflate a pop balloon? No. There's no chance ever. So our goal is to not show the jury, even though you're angry, not show the jury your teeth and claws. Our goal is to show a broken heart. And that red balloon is, is your broken heart. Now, if you fight with the, with the defense counsel and during cross-examination and you pull out your teeth and claws, you pop the balloon. Or if you seem agitated with defense counsel or put up an attitude or are difficult for defense counsel, the balloon may not pop, but it's like that balloon is being put between your arms and you're squeezing the nozzle and squeezing the air out of it at the same time. It makes a squeaky, farty noise, which is that a pleasant noise, Michael? No. All right, it's a very unpleasant noise. So we don't want you to have that unpleasant noise coming out of you on the witness stand too. So just gently let defense counsel squeeze the balloon and you let some of that air out of the balloon so that I can get up on redirect and reinflate the balloon. So the balloon analogy seems to work. Uh, there's another analogy that I can use. Do you want to hear another one? Yeah. Okay, so I use the big rock, small rock sand analogy. Are you familiar with this? I'm one? not. This is good. Okay, so pretend you have a five-gallon bucket on the table, a pile of big rocks, a pile of small rocks, and a pile of sand. If you put the sand in that five-gallon bucket first, and then you put the small rocks in next, is there room for the big rocks? Nope. Whereas if you put the big rocks in first, and then you put the small rocks in next, they filter through the cracks, and then the sand uh, in next, it filters through the rest. So many times my clients come to me and they care about an issue that nobody cares about. Right. So I give them this analogy, and I say, uh, I say, if they ask me later in trial, so this is now flash forward to trial, they're like, hey, what about that? I'm like, it's sand. They're like, oh, okay. And then they buy into that. Yeah. And they're, and they're done. And they, it's, I don't have to argue with them, don't have to explain it. It's just a one simple word, sand. Okay, and they get it. And it clicks for them. And our goal is to focus on the big rocks. If we can focus on the big rocks, then we win at trial. Defense counsel's goal is focus on the, get the focus on the sand and the small rocks so that those big rocks don't then fit in that five-gallon bucket later. So it's really important to be focusing on the big rocks and create a context for your client to understand what's important and what's not important at trial. You know, I've been learning so much from you on your, some of your analogies. There's one more I want to talk about before we wrap this up, and that's having the house be a witness, that kind of analogy, in, a, in an injury or death case. So I call it a, the home as a witness. And going back to this gentleman who had the teeth and claws, the angry guy, I have to give a little bit more of a context to his case. So his wife was uh, fairly disabled. They were in their mid to late 70s, early 80s. His wife required a wheelchair van transportation by the city to take her to her medical appointments. So on this particular day, he helped his wife to the curb uh, or to the driveway, and they, the city van transportation person put her in a wheelchair, put her on the lift, but forgot to strap the strap mm. on the lift. So she rolled off the end of the lift, and she landed on her, her head and face. She suffered a minor zygomatic arch fracture, which healed without any difficulty. She also suffered a minor myocardial infarction. Um, she had COPD, she had diabetes, she had cancer, she had everything you could possibly imagine for somebody her age. The, 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 she, she ended up, after the injury, going into the nursing home. 
She lived another 18 months or, or so thereafter and then died. Uh, trial came around and all I had was an expert saying linking five months of pain and suffering. So then they were offering 150,000 bucks for that five months of pain and suffering, which seems like a pretty good amount of money for five months of pain and suffering 20 years ago, okay? So 18 years ago, to be precise. So I turned the home into the theme of trial because this incident took this woman away from this, her husband and their home forever. So it began with sort of that concept, how important the home is. And also working for a member of Congress. So as a result, the jury came back at a $294,000 verdict. They doubled the offer, and which I was shocked by. But the home was the theme of the trial. But the home is so important. It's important because everybody, everywhere, including you and I right now, are going one place that we want to go to, and that's home. And that doesn't, and it doesn't matter who, who it is, and it, it applies to the jury too. So in our secular worlds, the words that matter the most to us are love, family, and home. And often those are interchangeable with one, with one another. So what I do is I turn the home into a witness by inviting the jury, literally and figuratively, into our client's home. So I use a, one of the first witnesses that I have will give a visual tour, and it doesn't apply to all cases, but it applies to a good 80% of them, tour of the home, so that the jury can then realize, because the jurors come in as skeptics, and they put up these barriers, and who is this person? Why are they bothering me? But as soon as they're invited to their home, who do you invite in your home? Your, your friends. friends. Right. And when you invite your friends in their home, the juror starts, those barriers melt away, they see where the person lives, and then you can create a context for how that person with a disability deals with certain challenges in their home. Even like uh, the, the case I'm going, going to trial here shortly, my client's arms are a mess, but he can walk around fine. And we have a tour of his home that we're going to be giving, and then we're going to show him in the home trying to do certain things in that home. Or in the wrongful death case, the home becomes a witness because I, I submit to you that the home grieves too. If you've ever lost a pet and you've come home after that pet's gone, that home's different. It's changed. Now think of it from a family member's perspective. Or think of it from like an, uh, you have a, a couple that's in their 60s that are empty nesters. One spouse gets killed in a truck crash. That home no longer is the gathering place for all of the extent, all of the kids and the kids' spouses and the grandkids, because it, that was where the home was alive with the bubbling smells of the kitchen, just in the laughter and the sound and all these wonderful things. Next thing you know, that home no longer is the gathering place, and in many ways, the home then falls into disrepair. And I've seen two cases where the home has fallen into such disrepair that the roofs caved in. Oh and wow! Mold, and no, and nobody knew it. My client, as a widow, she shut the door of the home forever after her husband died. Now you wouldn't have known it because she put on an incredible facade that everything was good, everything was normal, but the inside of that home told the story. There was a leaky roof that she shut the door to that bedroom that then turned into then a leaky roof throughout the house that then turned into mold that then turned into caving into the house roof and then turned into even more. And I, I had another client where I same same type of demographic where I'm sitting on the floor with her prepping her for trial. The floor in the house are filthy. A mouse goes running by. This is a different client. I was like, did you know you have a mouse? She goes, yeah, that's just Jerry. And I said, 
if your husband walked in, because I've seen pictures of your home, this home, alive and vibrant with your husband in this home. If your husband walked in through the doors of this home right now, what would he say? And she just crumbled in just tears. And I should have saved it for trial. Uh, we ended up settling that case after we picked the jury, but she just crumbled. And then her daughter said she didn't leave her bedroom for like months. Wow. And the laundry piled up, the dishes piled up. In many ways, the home grieves too, and the home creates a visual context of the whole loss. So I think the home is an incredible component, whether it be the theme of the trial, or whether it just show your injured client trying to just deal with their activities of daily living, or in the wrongful death context where the person. You see, you take the jury visually through a home. How do you, you know, specifically, how do you do that? So I, so frequently the witnesses who are on the stand that have difficulty because they're either stage fright or something else, I'll show them, hey, what is this? Oh, that's the front of my house. So I, I take pictures of the home without them even seeing it first. They, they don't even know that I'm taking the pictures or, or that I'm going to show them the pictures. Uh, here's a great example. So I had an investment banker out of the city of New York who had a huge salary, just you know, minor TBI. And I was told by defense counsel, no Cleveland, Ohio jury is going to ever relate to this guy and this salary. They don't make even anywhere near that. So I took him on a tour of the home. The home was in Upper East Side, Manhattan, but it was a 1,200 square foot apartment, whereas people in the city of Cleveland live in probably larger, yeah. larger homes. They're, the home was wonderfully lived in. It gave you a metaphorical hug when you walked through the door of this home, and it was as ordinary, well, this man and his salary and his job was extraordinary, his home was as ordinary as, our, as anybody else's. I came to his home without him knowing that I was coming. You know, I was coming to New York to visit with him, but I came a day before when I knew his wife would be at work, and I came into the home and started taking pictures, and the home wasn't all tidied up and neat or anything like that. And then, it's because it's only 1,200 square feet, the tour was fairly brief, but I took pictures of the kitchen. There's an open box of Cheerios on the kitchen on the kitchen shelf. There's a, the refrigerator has kids' pictures. It has a Costco coupon on it, which is as ordinary as it gets. There's laundry on the dining room table. And, you know, the, the girl, there's two daughters that are teenage daughters that share a bedroom. Their bedroom was a mess. So I was going to have the have his wife, and she was mortified to learn that I came into the home and saw it, and that's oh yeah. But and she didn't she didn't know I was taking pictures, but ultimately she was going to introduce all of this to the jury. But the all, the case ended up settling when the when defense counsel saw what I was going to do, and I was trans. It was a defense counsel that I I got along with, and he goes, "How are you going to get around this?" So I was transparent about it. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to show him these pictures here and here and here. He goes, "Oh my gosh, that's brilliant." <laughs> so anyway, he ended up yeah. ultimately coming around and resolving the case. So. Andy, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and uh, I'm going to definitely put some of these analogies to use in my cases. And thank you for all you do to try to make our our roadways safer, and not just suing people, but actually testifying before Congress, working with these safety groups, uh, trying to save lives. If someone wants to learn more about some of this stuff, how could they get a hold of you? Uh, I would say my cell phone's the best. I'm going to just give it to you, 216-789-4832, or, uh, and you can shoot me a text or a call or uh, email me. I'm an attorney in Cleveland, Ohio at Young and McCarthy, uh, A Young at at youngandmccarthy.com but again the cell phone 216-789-4832 is the best or get a hold of Michael and Michael I've learned a ton from you and I thank you for your hospitality and this opportunity I thank you from the bottom of my heart well it's great talking to you and I look forward to seeing you again thank you 
Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're listening to this episode on a mobile device, please click on Ratings and Review and leave our show a five-star rating and write a review. And if you're listening to this episode from our website, please leave a five-star rating on the episode page. We'd love to reach more listeners, and doing this will help more attorneys find this podcast. You can also visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list so you can stay updated on our new episodes. I promise we won't spam you. And thanks to your feedback, we've improved our podcast website. There's now a resources tab that you can click that shows you all the books we've mentioned on our podcast. If you have a Facebook account, please send us a request to join a private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our guests before an episode airs, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind the scenes moments. I love to hear from all of you, and our Table Talk episodes are based solely on questions from our fans. So please continue to send us emails at podcast at triallawyernation.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.